It's good to be here tonight with you, opening the word of the Lord, and I trust that the Lord will use His word to strengthen us in our faith and encourage us as we follow Him. If you'd open your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 7, Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37 will be our text this evening. And as you're turning there, our pastor is away for the next couple weeks or so. He has the opportunity to preach at another church in Colorado and also to have some time of well-deserved rest. And so uh, we're grateful to be able to share him with other believers as he strengthens them and also for him to have some time to rest and spend with his wife and have some time off, but we sure look forward to his return. It's been wonderful over these last eight and a half months what he has been doing from this pulpit and helping us build a Christian mind. You know, as I've listened week after week to the foundation that he is laying for us from the Word of God, it's just really astounding. And the messages that we're hearing week after week in that mega series are nothing less than a, than a compendium of decades of careful, accurate, intense study of the Scripture, and also a sound grasp of theology that is rooted in the Scripture. It's remarkable. And uh, I trust that you are able to be following that even as you think through the series where you, you know, try to think through the progression of those series. If you can't remember one of the main points, go back and listen to it and keep grounding yourself in that foundational matter. I was talking to someone, I don't know, the last week or so and said after what he's been doing with this foundational concrete that we've been listening to, I'm coming here and just throwing down some two-by-fours with bolts that are already set and ready to go. And it's that important, the work that he is doing. For the next five times that we're gathered together here, we'll be looking at Mark and the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to move, just to kind of give you an overview of where, where we'll go over the next two and a half weeks, we're going to move from the end of chapter 7 through the beginning of chapter 9, Lord willing, which is the transfiguration. And so we'll be crossing the continental divide here of Mark's gospel. And I'm really excited for the way that these five messages will build on one another and lead us to that amazing passage of the transfiguration of Christ. And so as we get ready to dive into Mark, I, I want to take just a moment to reorient us with the gospel just a, a briefly and capture where we are and where we're going. So Mark 7, 31 is going to be our text tonight, but turn back to the first chapter and let's just begin by noting Mark's theme statement in chapter 1, verse 1. What is Mark doing in this gospel? Well, he tells us 
at the beginning when he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's giving us a record of the beginning of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And remember that that title, Son of God, uh, carries a lot of significance, not just theologically, meaning theologically that Jesus is the essence of God, he is deity, but also within the Roman context, Romans looked at Caesar as a son of God. And so when Mark is writing this, he's establishing the fact that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the Son of God. He is the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And this is the record of Christ's work on earth, culminating in his crucifixion, his death for sin, for the redemption of sinners as the Son of God. After the, a brief introduction, Mark introduces Jesus' public ministry in verse 14 of chapter 1, where he says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so here, Mark is summarizing Jesus' ministry. What did Jesus do while he was on earth? Well, he preached the gospel of God, and he called people to repent and to believe that gospel. And just prior to that, uh, when John baptized Jesus in verses 9 and following, you recall that after he came out of the water, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. So what's happening early on? John has said, I'm, I'm telling you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And after Jesus' baptism, a voice comes from heaven and says, yes, this is my son, this is my son. And it's at that point that Jesus, the Son of God, goes into his public ministry starting in Galilee. And we've looked at uh, the passages leading up to where we are, but let's go ahead and turn to chapter 9, or the end of chapter 8 and chapter 9. Remember again, and I'm repeating this so we can have it seared into our mind that Mark is teaching us that Jesus is the Son of God. The Father stated that at the beginning of his public ministry, at his baptism. And then at the end of chapter 8, Peter is going to confess that Jesus is the Christ. Look at verse 29. Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And we'll unfold that in more detail in the coming weeks. But Peter is acknowledging that Jesus is the expected Messiah. 
And of course, in Matthew's account, Peter says, Peter is recorded to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And at that point, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a pivot where Jesus now focuses the majority of his attention and attention and the majority of his ministry on teaching his disciples and preparing them for his crucifixion. And you remember right after this, Jesus will say, now this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, no, not so. And the Lord has to rebuke Peter. And then he clarifies the call to discipleship. But right after that, right after this this pivotal moment in the gospel where Peter confesses Christ and Christ begins to explicitly teach about his crucifixion, we have another endorsement from heaven. And that's what the transfiguration is as Peter, James, and John go up to the Mount of Transfiguration and the cloud overshadows them. Look at verse 7 in chapter 9. Verse 7 in chapter 9. Remember, at the baptism, a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son. And now at the transfiguration, as, as this pivotal moment in Christ's ministry takes place and Jesus begins to teach his disciples that the Son of God must be crucified and rise again, at this pivotal moment, in this glorious moment, at the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. The corresponding statement to Mark's theme, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. This is my beloved son. And then after that statement, there's an instruction. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to the son of God. And then from that point, there is explicit movement to the cross where Christ would die for sin. And so as we come back to our passage tonight here in chapter 7, what we find is that within the scope of the gospel, Jesus is moving out of Galilee He's been rejected by the religious leaders in Galilee, and so he's starting to move away from Galilee and move towards Jerusalem. The narrative at the end of chapter 7 is moving toward Peter's confession. And the need for divine intervention for spiritual understanding is emphasized in these passages from the end of chapter 7 through the end of chapter 8. How is it that Peter is able to say, you are the Christ? Well, Jesus, again, in Matthew, tells Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You cannot agree with Mark's thesis that Jesus Christ is the Son of God apart from a work of divine intervention. It has to be a work of God that awakens your understanding to be able to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
And what we're going to see in these passages is that is exactly what is taking place leading up to Peter's confession, and it's exactly what is needed. It's not accidental that the Father says after Peter confesses him, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We need to hear that over and over and over again. We need to be reminded who Christ is. We need to be reminded that we need to listen to him. But leading up to that confession, the problem of spiritual inability, the problem of our inability to understand who Christ is, to understand our need for Christ, is illustrated by physical deafness and blindness. The passage we're going to look at tonight, Jesus restores healing to a deaf man. And then in chapter 8, right before Peter's confession, in verses 22 through 26, Jesus restores sight to a blind man. And those miracles are intentionally placed around the narrative leading to Peter's confession of Christ to illustrate to illustrate physically what the reality is for us spiritually. God has to work to open our ears. God has to work to open our heart. God has to work to open our eyes so that we can confess who Christ is. And, and we see this tied together in a statement that Jesus makes in chapter 8 and verse 18. After he feeds the 4,000, and after that sign, the, the Pharisees ask for another sign that he does not give him. Jesus is with his disciples he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, and they completely miss his point. And when they completely miss his point, Jesus says in verse 17, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear and do you not remember? Christ is diagnosing the problem of their heart. They don't have the capacity in and of themselves to hear, to see, to understand spiritual things. And so these physical miracles illustrate the need for Christ to intervene so that we can know who he is, so that we can confess Christ. Sin, when it entered the world in the fall of Adam and Eve, sin brought physical death and deformity into this life. Sin also corrupts and deforms our souls, keeping us from the fellowship with God that we were designed for. Right? The outward effects of sin are, are illustrative of what the, the ugliness of our souls are like outside of Christ. 
We were designed to know God. We were designed to be in fellowship with God. But sin utterly corrupted us. Dying, we die. But when we come to the Gospels, when Christ came and entered this world, the God-man, God in flesh, incarnate God, and he performed these miracles. Jesus is not performing these miracles arbitrarily. These miracles reveal Jesus' ability to restore. One day in Christ, all things will be reconciled to him. He'll restore all things. Part of the, the anticipation, the joy of our salvation in Christ is the guarantee that those who are justified will be glorified. And in God's eyes, it's done. There will be complete and entire restoration. And when Jesus was on earth, his miracles where he restored hearing, where he restored sight, where he, rose, where he raised people from the dead, where he cleansed lepers, it reveals his ability to restore. His miracles also revealed his deity. His restoration was typically instantaneous and complete. He did it in different ways. Sometimes he spoke, sometimes he touched. But regardless, he restored because he is God. The miracles are signs that Jesus is indeed God. And when you think about reading through a gospel one of the most rewarding ways to read a gospel is to sit down and read all the way through it in one sitting. Because what is recorded in each of the gospels, the life of Christ that is recorded, it's intended, it's intended to help you understand when you get to the crucifixion who it is that is being crucified. It's the Son of God. It's the eternal God-man that is being put to death. And every account in each of the Gospels helps clarify in our understanding who Jesus is, who it is that died, who it is that rose again, and who it is that intercedes on our behalf, Jesus Christ the Son of God. And so when we come to these passages that, re that record miracles, we need to understand that Jesus is not establishing a paradigm for social justice. No, he is preparing to satisfy divine justice as the God-man. The miracles reveal who he is, God in flesh. And it is only God in flesh that can die to redeem man from sin. Oh yes, Jesus is compassionate. He is tender. He cares. He sighs. He's touched by the feeling of our infirmities. But his miracles are not establishing a paradigm for social justice. Jesus came. He came to satisfy divine justice. 
and the record of the miracles give clarity that the one who died on the cross was the Son of God. He, through His perfect obedience to His Father, all through His ministry, He fulfilled all righteousness. And so He was the sinless, spotless sacrifice, the Lamb that was slain for our sins. He is the Messiah. He is the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 35 and verses 5 and 6. He is the Messiah that would unstop the ears of the deaf and make the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So with that background, let's read Mark 7 beginning in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up into heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Well, in this passage, we have a powerful physical restoration that teaches spiritual lessons. And let's just note some of the details of this passage. One of the realities, again, is that sin brings corruption and death. And someone who is deaf, there's an aspect of deadness to that. When you think about dying, a dead person is unresponsive. And so also a deaf person is unresponsive to sound. They can't, they, they, they don't hear, their sense is completely shut off from an aspect of what most people take for granted as part of life, as part of living Right? We, we hear things and we react to things. Right? We, we hear the soft cooing of a baby and we're like, aww. We hear the, we hear the crash of thunder when we're out in an open space and think, oh no. Right? We hear, we hear a car when we're on a road and think, I need to get off the road. Sounds. Right, just the air kicked on, right? And we, we didn't even really realize it because we're so used to, to hearing those sounds. But as a deaf person, you hear none of that. There's an aspect of deadness. You're not experiencing an entire sector of life. So this man is deaf and in verse 32, it says that he was brought to him by other people. 
And this is taking place in a more Gentile region. It is in the region of Decapolis. Jesus has spent a good amount of time away from Galilee. He's kind of taken a, a, a circuitous route in Gentile territories, probably teaching his disciples. And yet it's interesting that as he's in these Gentile territories, people are recognizing who he is. Just previously, the Syrophoenician woman came and he raised her daughter. And now as he's in the region of Decapolis, which is on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee, people are coming and they're bringing this deaf man who had a speech impediment begging that he would lay his hand on him. And so within the passage, something again easy to take, take for granted, Jesus is revealed as being in the flesh. Right? He's walking around on this earth. He's in a geographical location and people are coming to him and bringing other people to him. And, and here he is in the flesh and they're asking him to lay his hand on this man to heal him. He's in the flesh and he is interacting with people. And as he takes the man aside, puts his fingers into his ears, spits, touches his tongue, looks up, sighs, and says, be opened. We see immediately that the man's ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. There's a, a clear reality that Jesus rules over sin and all of its effects. He immediately restores hearing. He immediately restores the man's speech from his divine power. His deity is exhibited and demonstrated by his works. And within the physical restoration, we have another anticipation that one day Jesus, just like he physically restored so many while he was on earth, will physically glorify all those who are redeemed. Whatever is wrong with us now, and there's a variety of things that we have wrong with us, either from, from birth or because of disease or because of age or because of injury, whatever is wrong with us, we're in the presence of the Lord as redeemed people, as those bought by Christ's blood, it's gone. We're glorified. And we're able to worship the Lord without the presence of sin or any of its effects. Jesus is the great restorer. And the physical, powerful restoration teaches spiritual lessons. So let's look at some of the key lessons in this passage. The theme is that Christ must open your ears. Christ must open your ears. Our first point is that you are naturally unresponsive to Christ. The condition of the physically deaf man, unresponsive to sound, needing people to take him to Jesus. He didn't hear the announcement that Jesus was here. 
Someone had to take him to Christ. That physical impairment is the reality of our spiritual condition. You are unresponsive to Christ. You cannot hear his voice naturally, and you cannot speak his name or sing his praise. You are naturally unresponsive to Christ. Again, notice the deaf man. He was deaf and he had a speech impediment in verse 32. And then when Jesus heals the deaf man, in verse 35, his ears are opened, his tongue was released, he spoke plainly. And the response to that in verse 37, he has done all things well, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This man was unresponsive, just like we are unresponsive to Christ. Let's consider this in spiritual terms. You cannot hear his voice. In your own power, you cannot respond to Christ. Christ says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And what happens right after that in Matthew chapter 12? Well, the Pharisees go the exact opposite way. And they keep increasing their burden of guilt by rejecting the Christ who offers them rest. In your naturally unresponsive state, you cannot hear his voice. You can't even respond to his most gracious invitation to come to him and find rest for your soul. You can't hear the convicting thunder of the law of God as it drops the gavel on your infinite guilt before an infinite holy God. And that's what happened at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, right before the law was given in Exodus 20. The the Israelites were gathered at the mountain and there were thunder and lightning because of the greatness and the majesty of God. And in a spiritually unresponsive state, we read the law, we read the Ten Commandments, we hear it preached, we, we sit under the thunder, the gavel falls, the indictment comes forth, the sentence comes down, and we hear nothing. You can't hear the convicting thunder of the law. You in your natural state, unable to hear the voice of Christ. You cannot hear the proclamation of the glory of God declared by all creation day after day and night after night. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19 says. And yet, outside of Christ, you're deaf to the glory of God that's being proclaimed all around you. You can't hear the groaning of your own conscience under the guilt of sin because of your callousness against God and the darkness of your heart. You can't hear His voice. It doesn't awaken your conscience. It doesn't awaken a sense of guilt in your, in your soul. You can't hear the good news of the kingdom of God, the call to repent and to believe the gospel. You can't hear the declaration that Christ went to the cross to pay for sin. 
And you can't hear the invitation to come and to repent for the forgiveness of your sins, to depend entirely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. Not only is it that you cannot hear his voice and you can't hear the law, you can't hear the glory of God proclaimed, you can't hear the good news of the gospel, you can't hear the groaning of your conscience, you don't even want to respond to Christ. In John chapter 3 and verses 19 and 20, Jesus describes the condition of the darkened heart as loving sin and loving darkness. And in Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn there, go ahead. Ephesians chapter 4, as Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus and probably a circular letter that went to other churches as well, he tells those in Christ after describing the glorious work of the gospel in the first three chapters and moving on to teach them how to live, one of the points of instruction for those in Christ in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 is this. Paul writes, Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's talking about those who are outside of Christ, those who are in darkness, those who are spiritually unable to hear. Well, how do they walk? In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the condition of a spiritually unresponsive heart. That's the condition of someone who cannot hear his voice. It's darkened. It's futile in its thinking. And there's such a callousness in the soul that there is a pursuit of sensuality, a a pursuit of becoming skillful in sinning. That's what the unredeemed heart wants. That's the condition of man apart from Christ. You're naturally unresponsive to Christ. You cannot hear his voice. You don't even want to respond to Christ. And your own heart is against Christ. It's not neutral. It's against Christ. And it's encased in the world that is against Christ and the God of this world that energizes the world system against Christ and blinds and blinds those who would hear. You're, you're in, totally encased in your own sin and you're supernaturally blinded by the God of this world. That's what it is to be outside of Christ. That's what it is to not hear the voice of Christ. That's what it is in your natural state to be unresponsive to Christ. Oh, but this is so important. So important. You need to know that your unresponsiveness does not mean the Lord is silent. You need to know that your unresponsiveness does not mean the Lord is silent. A deaf person can't hear. 
But that doesn't mean there's no sound. It just means he or she can't hear it. And in the same way, those who are in their natural state apart from Christ in the darkness of their sins, they can't hear what would be for their salvation, but it doesn't mean the Lord is silent. Oh, the Lord makes it clear that he exists and that he is just, and that's where Romans 1 begins. The Lord is not silent. The megaphone of eternal realities from creation, from your own conscience, from the scriptures, and from Christ himself amplifies the guilt of those who remain deaf because of their love for sin. Man is helpless, and man is guilty before God. You're naturally unresponsive to Christ. You can't hear his voice nor can you speak his name or sing his praise. You know, these two things often go together. Someone who can't hear can't speak. Speaking is responsive to what you've heard. And so someone who is spiritually deaf can't speak the name of Christ or sing his praise. The man had a speech impediment Those who are outside of Christ in our natural states, we have a praise impediment because we don't receive the revelation of God and of Jesus Christ. Praise, praise is a response to revelation. Praise is a response to God. This has become quite confused in our Western culture, the Christian entertainment industry, also known as the broad evangelical church, thrives because churches are filled with unresponsive people who cannot offer a sacrifice of praise from a redeemed soul. And so artificial Praise is presented as a performance, as an entertainment, and that's all it is. It amounts to a Christian entertainment industry. Spiritually deaf people often demand counterfeit, emotionally driven experiences that bypass submission to God's word, and then they call that praise. Well, I was so emotionally wrapped up in this. Well, are you submitting to God's word? See, our our human hearts, even in our spiritually deaf condition, realize that we have to do something, but the unregenerate heart will embrace counterfeits that offer emotional highs and bypass submission to God's Word. When you can't receive God's revelation, you will not be able to respond with what Hebrews says, a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. 
What is it? A pleasing sacrifice of praise to God? It's fruit of lips out of a heart that submitted to God to acknowledge his name. And it's fascinating, is it not, that that's in Hebrews 13, 15. It's almost at the very end of Hebrews after the writer has given an extended explanation of the glory of Christ. Ah, when we respond to Christ, when we submit to Christ, the overflow of our heart then is a sacrifice of praise, not a counterfeit entertainment. You're naturally unresponsive to Christ. You cannot hear his voice. You cannot speak his name or sing his praise. But point number two, point number two, what does Jesus do? He takes him, this man aside from the crowd. He puts his fingers in his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and he looked up to heaven. He sighed and he said to him, if after that is be opened and his ears were opened. So point number two, Christ supernaturally restores his people. Christ supernaturally restores his people. You are naturally unresponsive to Christ, but Christ supernaturally restores his people. Jesus restores personally, and he restores powerfully. Look at how Jesus interacts with this man. This just shows us the, the kindness of our Lord. It's, it's amazing. They bring this man to him. They're begging him. And what does Jesus do? Well, we have, we have a lot of details here of what Jesus did physically in preparing to restore this man. Right? He took him aside from the crowd privately. He put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, he touched his tongue. And he looked up into heaven. And he sighed. And he said, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. But if I count correctly, there are six physical things that Jesus does. He takes him aside, puts his fingers in his ears. He spits, he touches his tongue, he looks up to heaven, and then he sighs and says to him. Now, why, why did Mark record it that way for us? Well, what's this man's problem? He can't hear. So if Jesus, you know, began to speak to him, that would be pointless because he can't hear him. So Jesus interacts with him in a very physical way because that's what the man understands. And he brings him, he brings him away, he interacts with him in a way that, that would indicate that he is going to do something for this man. And then by the word of his power, be opened. And he can talk, he can hear, he can talk. But Jesus dealt with him 
in an individual manner, in a very personal way. He gave him personal attention. And, and this man, this kind, of, this kind of man in this society would have been completely ostracized from society, would have been unclean. And yet Jesus takes him in, calls him apart to himself, and deals with him in a very personal way, leading him to a point where Christ restores his capacity to hear and his capacity to speak. What a demonstration of the compassion of our Lord to deal with that one man in such a direct, personal manner. And within that, within that, we have this little statement Jesus sighed. Jesus sighed. Jesus understands the weight of sin. He sighed because of the devastating consequences of people's of sin in people's lives. He's touched by the feelings of our infirmities. And he intervened for the good of this man. Jesus will sigh a little bit later in chapter 8. It's intensified sigh when the Pharisees are asking for a sign and he groans in his spirit at the weight of their unbelief. Jesus is touched by the feeling of our infirmities. And there's a spiritual lesson here for us. When Christ restores spiritual hearing, he does it in different ways. You know, the effectiveness of of the healing was not in the things that Jesus did. Those weren't effective. The effectiveness of the healing was Jesus himself, was the power of God and the word be opened. Jesus heals in many different ways. Sometimes he's away and he raises up. Sometimes he's right right there. Sometimes he's very physically interactive. And in the same way, when when Christ restores those who are outside of Christ, when he leads us to regeneration, to conversion, there are many different ways that he does this. Let me give you an example. We won't turn there, but in Acts chapter 16, you have two accounts of conversions. One is Lydia, this woman who's a seller of purple. And what we find in in that chapter is Paul goes down to the river and he's speaking of Christ and Lydia's heart was opened. She was converted. So Lydia, her heart was opened while in a serene setting by a river. A little bit later in the chapter, the jailer's heart was opened in the chaotic scene of an earthquake and the potential of escaped prisoners. He was about to kill himself. Paul said, don't do that. And he fell down and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right? Different different circumstances, different ways that God providentially orchestrates things to bring people to himself. And, And we could multiply that by the number of people that are sitting here tonight or watching over the live stream. All right, we can, if we heard all the different testimonies of how 
Christ brought those of you who are in Christ to himself, right? There would be a, there would be a spectrum of circumstances, of life situations where God was working and, and in his time, he opened your ears to understand your guilt before him. He opened your ears to understand the glory of God. He opened your ears to understand the fullness of the redemption that Christ had, had provided and you fell down in some way, shape, or form before God, pleading only the name of Jesus Christ. And it all comes to the same end of recognizing Christ, but Jesus deals with us according to the needs that he knows as he leads us to himself. Christ supernaturally restores his people. He does it personally. He also restores powerfully. When Jesus restored the man's abilities, it was immediate and complete. Look back at the passage here. In verse 37, Jesus said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Verse 35, and his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. With a word of his power, the man was completely restored. Typically, someone who, even with the modern science of different hearing implants, they have to learn how to hear. They have to learn how to then speak. Right? There's learning that has to take place. There's rehabilitation that has to take place. Not in this case. He heard. He spoke plainly. It was an instantaneous restoration. His speech was clear and comprehensible. And notice that the people recognized this. Right, look at the response of the people. And, you know, there's something that's really important to understand. Even as we move through the Gospels, the Gospel, and see the, the reaction of the Pharisees, no one ever questions the reality of these mighty works. Not even the Pharisees. One of the saddest points of this is in, in John chapter 11 when Jesus raises Lazarus and then the Pharisees are trying to kill him again. <laughs> they don't deny that he was raised. They just want to kill him again. You're like, why are you going to? It doesn't even make sense. But when Jesus does these mighty acts, no, no one questions the reality. And here there are witnesses and verse 37 says, they were astonished beyond measure. Here's this man who couldn't hear, he couldn't talk, and now immediately he can hear and he can speak plainly. And those around are astonished out of measure. They're, they're shaken out of their minds because of the power of the one that just healed this man. Made the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. There's no question. So what does it look like then when Christ opens spiritual hearing? 
What happens to our souls? How do we hear and speak plainly? We'll turn to another passage in the epistles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. After Hebrews, right after Hebrews, so it's the next chapter that, uh, to what we were in just a moment ago. Hebrews 13 and then James chapter 1. Look down at verse 18. Speaking of conversion, James writes, "...of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth." that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." So what does it look like when Christ opens spiritual hearing? Well, in verse 18, what we have is a summary of conversion. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. Right? That's what happens when we're saved. We're brought forth by the will of God through the power of the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. And what follows is then a reminder... As those who are now new creatures in Christ, the first thing that James reminds us is that we need to be quick to hear. And being quick to hear means that we put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness in contrast to Ephesians 4, where those in darkness pursue filthiness and rampant wickedness. Those in Christ now put away filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What it looks like when the Lord opens spiritual hearing is to be a person who is receptive to the truth and who rejects sin, to put it simply. When our ears are open, we gladly receive the truth and we gladly turn away from sin. And our, our hearts, our internal posture is entirely transformed. We receive with meekness the Word. This Word that, that as someone outside of Christ, we couldn't hear, we couldn't care less, we might have just mocked it and totally turned away from it. Now there's a completely different heart posture. We're receiving with meekness the implanted Word that saves our souls. And what is meekness? Well, we just heard an entire sermon about meekness a few weeks ago. So let me just remind us of that definition. When our spiritual hearing is restored and our internal posture is changed to receive the Word of God with meekness, what does it look like? What is meekness? Meekness is a spiritual composure that is rooted in a trust in God that responds in peace to conflict or adversity. 
instead of raging against God, instead of raging against the Word of God, our souls are transformed to trust God, whatever may come, and to listen to God. If you trust God, you're going to listen to Him. So receive with meekness, receive with meekness the implanted Word that is able to save your souls. And, and those whose spiritual hearing has been restored, read that and say, Amen. That's what I need. I need to be washed by the Word of God. I need the Word. I need the Word. I need nothing but the Word of God. And that life then takes on a consistency that's produced by heavenly wisdom. As we listen to God's word, as our hearing is restored, run your eyes over to James chapter 3 and verse 13. And the connection here is that those who listen receive the word with meekness. And then in James chapter 3 verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James then gives a contrast of earthly wisdom, demonic wisdom. And then he expands in verse 17 the kind of wisdom that he's talking about. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What does it look like when Christ opens spiritual understanding? Well, there's a reception of truth and a rejection of sin, James 1, 19 to 21. But there's also then a consistency that's produced by heavenly wisdom. As you hear the word of God and receive with meekness that implanted word, there's a consistency of life that grows from the wisdom that is from above that's sowing peace and reaping a harvest of righteousness. And it comes from listening to the word of truth. Is your hearing restored? Right? This kind of posture to the word of God is nothing less than a supernatural change by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It gives us a desire to have the same mind of Christ that Isaiah 50 tells us Christ's testimony, he awakens my ear morning by morning. Why? To hear. To hear. Christ supernaturally restores his people. So we've seen you're naturally unresponsive to Christ. Christ supernaturally restores his people. And then finally, third tonight, Christ's restoring work generates praise. Christ's restoring work generates praise. As we've been going through tonight and unpacking these spiritual lessons from this miracle that Christ performed, and you're listening and you're, and you're thinking, praise the Lord. 
I once was blind, but now I see. I once was deaf, but now I hear. Right, that this is evidence of God's work in you, and it naturally leads to praise. Again, back to Mark chapter 7. As Jesus accomplishes this mighty work and restoring this man's hearing, he charges those around to not tell anyone. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And just a quick note here, when Mark records Jesus saying, don't tell anyone, the reason Jesus is saying that is his redemptive work has not been completed. And there's an ease in people to completely misunderstand what was happening. And we see that even in Peter when he confesses Christ, he still doesn't understand the fullness of what Christ came to do. That's all that is involved when Jesus is telling people, don't go out and proclaim this. It's simply because the fullness of his work has not yet been accomplished. But yet, people go out and proclaim as what he did anyway. They can't help themselves. They proclaim his greatness. And again, look at, the, look at the response. The more zealously they proclaimed it in verse 36, and then on to verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute to speak. This is the natural response to Christ restoring work. Christ restoring work generates praise. It generates praise, first of all, for God's greatness, right? These people are shaken out of their wits. They can't believe the greatness of what they've just witnessed. Someone who couldn't hear anything, someone who couldn't talk at all plainly, he's, he's healed. He can hear. He can talk. This is powerful. This is amazing. This is nothing more than the greatness of the power of God among them. And so they praise God. They're amazed. They're shocked. God is great. Have you reflected lately on the power of God to save sinners? You know, even in the last couple of weeks, we've had the privilege of back-to-back baptisms and hearing testimonies. What was your response to that? Was it praise God for his greatness? Praise God for his greatness to deliver people who were dead in trespasses and sins and make them alive in Christ. Praise God for his greatness to take sinners who were blind and deaf to the word of God and give them a hunger and thirst for righteousness and a desire to hear God and to be with his people. Praise God for his greatness. But Christ's work also generates praise for God's goodness. God is great. It's very simple, isn't it? But profound. God is great and God is good. And the people said, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. When God works, it is in perfection. And you know, when we 
<laughs> when we think about our salvation, sometimes we're frustrated by the lack of perfection that we exhibit in our lives and in our responsiveness to God. But our lack of perfection, our struggle with sin, our inability to praise God and, and offer our bodies as a living sacrifice the way we desire has no effect on the completeness of his work of redemption. It's done. It's good. He does all things well. And my salvation is entirely dependent on his grace and his goodness. He is good. I was deaf, and now I hear. I couldn't sing his praises, and now his name can't leave my tongue. Why? Because he has done all things well. He is good. Christ's restoring work generates praise for God's goodness, for God's greatness, and for his goodness. Regenerated people give praise to God when they see the works of God. One of the great joys every week of coming together, right? whether it's on Sunday morning or Tuesday night, is when we come together and we start the service and we sing. Right, We sing as a congregation. We sing together. We sing as a group of people offering praise to God for his greatness and goodness out of souls that have been transformed, out of souls that now hear the word of God, out of souls that are hungry to hear the word of God, and lives that desire nothing more than to praise God. And, and that, that is true praise. When God's people come together, and maybe not in the same words, but through the words of hymn writers, say, he does all things well. He does all things well. Oh, may the Lord give us continued grace to praise him in that way. While Christ was on earth, his power to physically restore demonstrated his power over sin. He brings us to life. He awakens our hearing. And one day, one day, we're going to be in heaven with him and we will have no defects whatsoever. We, we will have no problems. We'll have perfect pitch. And we'll offer a song of praise to God that will be everlasting. Praise to the Lamb. Praise to the God. And it will fill, it will fill the heavens. Revelation describes it in Revelation 19 like a roaring of, of a huge waterfall. And it will be perfect and sweet before our God and our King. But let me end tonight by asking you, has Christ opened your ears? Has Christ opened your ears to hear the good news? And if you are outside of Christ, and I, you know, I, you say, well, you just said I can't, I can't respond. I, I know. But the Bible also says that we're to call people to repent. And it's through the preaching of the word that he opens the ears. 
So if you are outside of Christ, my call to you is just, I'm just going to repeat the words of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel and join the mighty throng that prays our God. Lord, we thank you tonight for Christ, our Savior. We thank you for the humility of our Lord and taking upon him flesh and coming to earth to redeem us from our sins by his perfection of obedience and his perfect sacrifice. And Lord, we pray that you would take the word preached tonight and that you would complete your good work in each of our lives for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.